Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hello and welcome to the Podcast Hour. I'm Richard Scott and each week I find lots of podcasts from around the world and bring you all the best stuff. In the process, hopefully giving you a few new ideas of things to listen to. Coming up today... When We Got to the Seventh is a series of standalone podcasts that tell the story of an encounter with the seventh something. It could be the seventh anything, anywhere, anytime. Then Personal Best has fun with self-improvement. The Power of You. A sales workshop for the new millennium. Are you interested in improving your sales? Are you interested in success? What would you do to make the sale? Is it enough? In this workshop, we believe that everything you need is already inside of you. After that, celebrating life's simple pleasures. All the sheep birds, silence. All the bunnies running around about. Making friends, making relations, making love. And finally, when and why did the whole pink for girls and blue for boys thing start? First, you have a society worrying about manhood and sexuality. On top of that, you have psychologists saying how you treat your baby matters. And then all of a sudden, people start caring about what their babies are wearing. Because they're told that if they get it wrong, their boys won't turn out right. And next time you hear something good, do let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. It was an idea that arrived in Emma Clark's head in the middle of the night, and it ended up scribbled down on post-it notes all over her bed. She's a voiceover artist, and When We Got to the Seventh is her fiction podcast that revolves around an encounter with a seventh something. It could be a marriage, a planet, even a victim. The first season of the series has seven episodes. Of course it does. And they're all self-contained, so you can listen to any one of them and it will take you straight into the mind of the central character. How they think and what motivates them, even when you start to realise that their worldview just might be a little bit different to your own. People underestimate the bond between a mother and a son. I'd kill to protect my son and I think a lot of mothers would agree with that statement. I'm no oddity. I'm just a very maternal person. I always have been. When he was a baby, you know, newborn, he'd look at me as if he'd known me forever. And I think he had. I know that sounds daft, but... I think we've always known each other, me and him. We were always meant to be together. Somehow, I can't explain it. Anyway, to the people who don't understand why I did what I did, I say this... It's none of your business, and I don't care what you think of me. 
He might sit in judgment and make assumptions, but you just don't know the bond I have with my son. We've always been close. His father used to be jealous, can you believe that? In fact, he said that's why he left when Mikey was just a year old. He said he felt like all my attention had gone on Mikey and he felt left out. Pathetic. But I suppose we were in our own private bubble. And then he went to school and he had teachers and friends and then he had teammates and had kickabouts with the lads down our road and naturally I let him grow up. Facilitated his development as any loving mother would. And then he discovered girls. Now, there was no way I was going to let some silly little cow break his heart, so I told him I'd be very unhappy if he started seeing anyone I didn't like. And he accepted that. I think it made him feel safe. He knew I wanted the best for him, so there was no arguments. What kind of mother doesn't want the best for her kids, a son? So... He really didn't have a girlfriend until he went away to uni. And then I think he only did that because he was lonely. I mean, we spoke every night on the phone and every morning when I woke up, but he wasn't living with me during term time, and I think he was struggling. Leaving home, leaving me, it was really difficult for him. I'm sure it was. It was agony for me. He didn't always tell me about these girls. I just, you know, sensed when he was seeing somebody. I could hear it in his voice. When I'd phone him and he'd be dismissive or he said he was busy or didn't return my calls and texts, I'd know. And I'd ask him outright. Even if he said there was nobody he knew, I knew. And that was enough. I mean, if you didn't feel comfortable telling me about these girls, they couldn't have been up to much, could they? That said everything. Eventually, he met somebody he saw for more than a couple of weeks, and that fizzled. And then another. And then another. He's a very good-looking boy. He's beautiful. Tall. Dark. Long-limbed, sensitive, and he's... He's got these eyes. Eyes that could drive a woman mad. And then, out of the blue, he told me he'd met Meredith. She, according to my reckoning, was the seventh. Lucky bloody seven. He said he wanted me to meet her. That he'd been seeing her for a few months and he'd like us to be friends. Friends. Can you imagine my face? Do you love her? I said. Just sort of laughed, embarrassed. I could tell he didn't, but he might think he did. So we arranged that we meet in a pub for lunch. A carvery, you know, we've got a voucher. I had my hair done, my nails, bought a new dress, new shoes, new bag. There was no way I was going to turn up looking a mess. She, apparently, was from Cheshire. Went to a grammar school. Her father was a policeman. Her mother didn't have to work. And she was an only child. Well, you know what they say about only children. 
but I kept an open mind. I parked up and watched the pub waiting for them to arrive. I didn't want to be sat inside like a plum at some empty table, killing time, waiting for Meredith. I spotted her straight away. Blonde. Tall. Big teeth. Horsey. And he was smiling. I could tell he was nervous. There was a tension in his neck, the way he moved his head. Anyway, I walked in and he came straight over and gave me a massive hug. I saw her face over his shoulder. And she just looked down at her hands like she didn't know where to put herself. Yes, I thought. He's mine, lady. You tread careful. And then she stood up and stretched out her hand and I shook it. It was limp and dry as if we were shaking hands with an empty glove. There was nothing to her. Oh, she was educated and polite and well-travelled and she didn't drink. Didn't quite approve when I ordered a spritzer. Mikey's eyes were darting from her to me to me to her like a tennis umpire. When it was over, I stood up to leave. He looked at me expectantly as if he wanted me to show that I liked her. I just patted his cheek and left. I didn't phone him or text him for a week after that and he knew. It got to the point where he was phoning me five times a day at least, leaving messages and he even sent me a card through the post. That's how much he loves me. Couldn't bear not to be in contact with me. He said he'd been to see his doctor, he was that bad. We never discussed her. He was always coming up with suggestions for me to see them again together, walks, lunches, theatre trips. But I told him, in my own way, that really I wanted to see him without her. Why would I want to see her? My time with him was precious now he was growing up making his own life. I wanted to cherish it every moment. And I wasn't really in the mood for sharing, know what I mean? So I didn't see her until the following Mother's Day. They just turned up, unannounced. The plan had been for him to take me to afternoon tea at a posh hotel. I got a group on deal to make it a bit cheaper for him, but no, she was there on my doorstep in a daft dress with a daft hair and a daft teeth. We've got something to tell you, he said. Well, you don't have to be a genius to know what he was going to say. He'd proposed, and she had accepted. Couldn't I find it in my heart to be happy for him, for them? slammed the door and said he had a migraine. It completely ruined my day. Meredith was a primary school teacher. Oh, bless. And from what I could gather from the school website, they took safeguarding very seriously. So what on earth would the head say if they were to receive a letter suggesting that Meredith had said inappropriate things to a child? that Meredith had slapped a child. Now, I'm not saying I wrote such a letter, nor am I saying that I posted it, but what I do know is that Meredith was suddenly not working there anymore, and that Meredith, according to Mikey, was seeing a counsellor. Bless her. 
It was around that time that Meredith started getting credit card bills for items and services she claimed she had not bought. She alleged that somebody had stolen her identity, that somebody had a vendetta against her. That's when she started drinking. She was already on antidepressants, it turned out, and according to Mikey, she was spiralling. Of course, I was the first person he turned to. He said she changed. He said she didn't communicate, that she was totally self-involved and oblivious to him and his needs. I said to him, what did you expect? But he said that despite everything, he still wanted to marry her. He looked straight at me when he said that, and it was an arrow through my heart. So imagine my devastation when I learned that somehow somebody had done something terrible to the wheels of her car. The one day when she'd summoned the energy to get off her fat ass and go out, the front offside wheel came clean off and she ploughed straight into a lamppost at 30 miles an hour. It was a tragedy, they said in the local paper. Spinal injuries. Well, Mikey wasn't going to cope with that, was he? He didn't want to be married to that. So he broke it off. Even though she said she'd been the one to finish it. Now, unfortunately, and at the time I didn't realise, but there was CCTV footage of the perpetrator working on her car. I'm not saying I did it. I've never said that. But the jury seemed to think I did. I'll be out eventually. Would I do it again? Of course I would. And who comes to see me every week and bring me flowers and chocolates and sends me cards telling me he loves me? I won that one, didn't I, eh? He's mine, and he always will be. When we got to the seventh and an episode called I'm Just a Very Maternal Person, written and performed by Emma Clark and produced by Eddie Delag. Have you ever wanted to be a better you? Well, Personal Bests, a Canadian show playing around with the expectations and the conventions of the self-improvement genre. Rather than winning friends, influencing people and increasing your wealth, its goals are far more modest. Perhaps it's learning to be a better texter or becoming less awkward around shop assistants. So the wins are small, the budgets are meagre and the methods are dubious. And who knows? you might just end up getting slightly less bad at something. Your life coaches and spirit guides in this quest to be the best are Rob Norman and Andrew Norton. Here they take on the case of Colleen, who's offered to sell her brother-in-law's paintings, but has admitted to mention she's got zero experience and a naturally retiring personality. As she says, I can't sell anything to anybody and I always take no for an answer. She needs to develop some serious sales and persuasion skills, and fast. So the obvious starting point is to search the phone book for a real-life Willie Loman. That's the name of the main character in the Arthur Miller play, Death of a Salesman. For this woman, Colleen, do you have any advice for her? Oh, man. Maybe persuasion is about 
getting a point of view across that the other person hasn't seen, whether that's positive or negative. That sounds pretty powerful. Well, on the fly here, I think it's about the best I can do. And where are we reaching you? Where are you right now? Well, I'm, I'm actually driving my truck right now. I'm driving a semi. You're driving a semi truck? Yeah. Could you do me a favor? Could you pull the horn? <laughs> well, I got a couple of people driving by me here. Just hang on. I don't want to scare them. Okay. All right. Hang on. <laughs> Hear it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Will, we just persuaded you to do something. <laughs> yeah, you, you did, but it, just, it wasn't very hard. <laughs> we also called people who played with Lee Loman, like Charlie Robinson, who donned the tweed jacket and briefcase in 2013. Here's the thing. I, really, usually people that sell and are really good salespeople, it's something about them that, unfortunately... <laughs> You know, you really don't want to know them because, I mean, you know, let's, let's be honest. They're tricky. They're just tricky. That's the problem that Willie Loman had. Charlie, I want to take a step back here. Um, what was it like when you got the part of Willie Loman? I learned so much about myself after getting that part. And, you know, what it is is that you do it for four weeks. It may seem as though it is being repeated. But truth be told is that every night you learn something through repetition. Every night you learn something through repetition, through repetition. repetition, Sorry, I think my computer's broken. Hold on. There we go. It's a wonderful study. And here's Daryl Mullins, who wowed crowds with his performance in the Community Players of Salisbury production. I did that play back in February, I think, in just a little local community theater production. I thought, where are these guys finding me? I was just wondering... What are the secrets to selling someone something? Uh, <laughs> well, um, it, it's interesting that you should ask me that question because um, when I'm not dabbling in amateur community theater, I am uh, a professor of communication at a local university, and one of the courses I teach is persuasion. It's very funny, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> so I, I can sort of answer that question from a couple of different perspectives. Whenever I teach that course, I, I start with Aristotle, you know, who's considered kind of the, the, the great-great-granddaddy of, of human persuasion. And he said there were three building blocks of persuasion. There's um, ethos, which is appealing to your own reputation and image. There's pathos, appealing to the emotions of the audience. And then there's logos, which is appealing to the logic, you know, why it makes sense to buy whatever it is you're selling. If Willie Loman was here, what advice do you think he would give Colleen? Um, he, w- he would say, I think, make sure you get to know the person that you're trying to sell to and convince them that you are their friend. You know, I, I know what your life is like because I've lived it too. I think we need to start with something hands-on for Colleen. You know, start building those persuasion muscles, and ideally without doing any actual selling. Me and Rob and our associate producer, Jess Shane, are sitting on a stoop outside the CBC building. We have something very special on the way. I'm really excited. So excited that we got here 40 minutes early. But that's given us plenty of time for Jess to fill us in about her dad's anti-hair loss treatment. Does it require needles? You should get that, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, I should. And then... After another 20 minutes, 
it arrives. Oh, there he is. Yes, ice cream. Yes. Oh, he's, he's driving past us. The ice cream truck is driving past us. Uh, Maybe he needs to turn around. No, he's, he's turning right. The full-service ice cream truck we rented finally pulls up onto the sidewalk, inconveniencing downtown pedestrians. But it is so worth it. I've never been in an ice cream truck before. Our man Costas gives us a tour. Dip, Sunday sauces. But this truck is missing one thing. So what, you're, you, you disconnected the music? No, it broke. No way. When did it break? Uh, like three months ago. I went over a speed bump a little bit too fast and disconnected the music. What's an ice cream truck without music, man? Just, just a truck. In the midst of all the important food handling training we're receiving, we remember that Colleen is here. She's the guest from this episode. We've been thinking a lot about how to help you with sales. Yeah. And I think we found the perfect solution. Okay. And it's waiting for you just around this corner. Ice cream. Nobody's in a bad mood when they're buying ice cream. And today, the ice cream is all free. I feel ready. Free ice cream. Nobody can get mad at me for that, right? But Colleen's mission today is to convince people not to take the ice cream so she can practice her persuasiveness without having to sell. In fact, it's like the exact opposite of a sale. That's much harder. But to help lessen the blow of this bad news, I explain it to her while eating an ice cream cone. I didn't know when someone goes, you know what, never mind. A win is if someone says, you know what, never mind. You okay. want them to not want that cone and walk away empty-handed. Okay, I have some ideas. All right, are we ready to get started? Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, let the free ice cream begin! Open for business, open her up. So you're here for the ice cream? Yes, please, chocolate. Okay, I'm really sick, I have to warn you. I have a really bad cold, so I'll try not to breathe on your ice cream. Okay. This is not good ice cream. It's ice cream, yes. But this is like nostalgia purposes. Because of the truck? Yeah. But it didn't even play the song. That's right? true. I personally wouldn't eat it. I like. I just had lunch myself, and I don't think you need ice cream on top of it. Don't say that, though. Because then you don't want to eat it? Now, yeah, because now none of us want it. I know, but I just, I have to be honest with you. I can't let you yeah. just eat ice cream. I don't think you should be eating it, so. No, I'm good. All right. The lineup outside the truck is now about 20 people deep. So Colleen really cranks up her anti-cone rhetoric. I'm not sure you're gonna want this. It's gonna be like you had a beer with lunch. You're gonna feel so tired in like half an okay. hour. That's okay, thank you. You too? Yeah, I Did you have lunch? Your job is to convince people not to take it and people look really upset leaving with their ice cream. You're doing great. Yeah, people are mad, but she hasn't really dissuaded anyone. Colleen has one final ace up her sticky, soft-serve-soaked sleeve. Where did you get those glasses? Uh, around the corner. They're oh. really nice glasses. Thank you. They make your face look really nice. Thank you. Yeah. You look, You and I look like we could be related. Do you find? Maybe. A little bit. I think she's stalling. She's stalling. So she's just asking a bunch of questions. It's an ice cream filibuster. She's drinking an ice cream filibuster. Well, you know, even though we're not related, we could probably still be friends. So why don't you give me your number? Sure. And then we can hang out sometime. Sure. Well, you're going to have to do that before I give you the ice cream. Oh, all right. Uh, here, you can write on this. Your name, your phone number, your email, your postal code. Postal code. Postal code. You can all get ready because you all need to give me the same thing. And I'm probably going to call you at home. So she has everyone in line write down their personal info before they can get a cone. 
and one lady. One lady is like, nah, no thanks, and walks off. But except for her, everyone walked away from that truck with free ice cream. But I'm sure she learned an important lesson from the activity. It was hard, really hard. Okay, well, at least we all had fun. It was emotionally draining, really emotionally draining. And I felt shitty. Oh, never mind. After this, I'm not ready to sell, not not confident enough in my selling ability. It was a bad activity. I'm sorry. It was not a good activity. So maybe instead of avoiding selling, we need to master selling, really embrace sales culture. I'm thinking one of those massive conferences where a man with a headset yells at you over and over and over again until somehow you're inspired. But I Googled it, and those things are like 10000 bucks a ticket, so we can't afford that. But do you know who doesn't have to pay for a sales seminar? That guy in a headset running that sales seminar. That's why I'm introducing... The Power of You, a sales workshop for the new millennium. Are you interested in improving your sales? Are you interested in success? What would you do to make the sale? Is it enough? In this workshop, we believe that everything you need is already inside of you. I'm hosting a free sales conference, and I just read you the poster. I've put them up all over the CBC building. You know, I got in trouble for that poster. Oops. Some of personal best from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and an episode called How to Master the Art of Persuasion. And the show's hosted by Rob Norman and Andrew Norton and produced by Jess Shane and Yasmin Maturin. (laughs) When was the last time you thought about the good things in your life? The things you value, the things that bring you pleasure and happiness? After years of exile through the Second World War, the German playwright Bertolt Brecht wrote a simple poem called Vergnügenen, or A List of Pleasures. The list includes dogs, showers, new music, comfortable shoes, and of course, dialectics. But without getting too philosophical myself, the pleasures of Brecht did make me think a bit. Let me think. Um, I love having my feet massaged a foot massage, Um, walking out after rain, uh, smelling the soil, watching the birds, ah, whatever they're doing across the sky. I love just a row of them sitting on the telephone wire. Um, The face of any of my children or grandchildren, that's for sure. What about uh, a good uh, cup of tea in the morning? Mm. And then um, the wind in your face, uh, the taste of rain, someone tuning up a fiddle right before playing it, the tuning of an orchestra before it begins, the doorbell. Well, that's that's maybe not every doorbell. <laughs> oh, is that enough? Pleasures. The pleasures of Brecht.
1954. The German playwright and poet Bertolt Brecht has returned to Berlin following 15 years of exile. He spends his time in an apartment in the East German capital and at his country retreat in Bukow. By the lake, deep amid fir and silver poplar, sheltered by the wall and hedge, a garden so wisely plotted with monthly flowers that it blooms from March until October. These are his last years. He is busy working on new plays and new concepts for the Berliner Ensemble, the theatre company he established with his wife, Helena Weigel, in East Germany. I write in case on my knee, I sit in the summer house. A green boat appears through the willow. On this day, he types out a poem, a list of pleasures as a gift for his new lover. He walks it round to the cottage where she stays. Pleasures. Vergnügungen. The first look out of the window in the morning. The first look out of the morning. The old book found again. Das wiedergefundene alte Buch. Enthusiastic faces. Begeisterte Gesichter. Snow. Schnee. The change of the seasons. Der Wechsel der Jahreszeiten. The newspaper. Die Zeitung. The dog. Der Hund. Dialectics. Die Dialektik. Showering, swimming. Duschen, schwimmen. Old music. Alte Musik. Comfortable shoes. Bequeme Schuhe. Understanding. Begreifen. New music. Neue Musik. Writing, planting. Schreiben, pflanzen. Traveling. Reisen. Singing. Singen. Being friendly. Freundlich sein. The first look out of the window in the morning, the old book found again, enthusiastic faces, snow, the change of the seasons, the newspaper, the dog, dialectics, taking showers, swimming, old music, comfortable shoes, taking things in, new music, Writing, planting, travelling, singing, being friendly. I suppose one asks, um, what are these things doing? There's no connection between them. They seem to be put there just in an arbitrary list, which, of course, is one of the reasons why this poem is so popular and has so many imitators. It's set as a sort of standard in German school books and children are always asked to write their own poem in response. To find a look out of the window at night, yearning wrapped up in dull day reflection, hot tea, cacao, a book under the light of a torch, gentle goodbyes and friendly greetings, sun, the change of the days, familiar smells, sawdust, lavender, hay, sun cream, the picnic rug. Singing in the shower, playing computer games, meeting friends, socks that I like, they are black with white stripes. The lake, floating, unknown smells, running, but not too long. 
Asking questions without understanding, just imagination. When someone is dancing, crazy. Being in a happy days. Hiking, drawing, dancing. Daily meditations. Dirty taste of coffee. Sticky dark chocolate. Orange ginger bonbons. Clothes for winter. On the underground train. Instinctive smiles. Catching moments of happiness. Asparagus. Giving back. Showing. Nineteen thirty-three. The years of exile begin. For we went, changing our country more often than our shoes. As soon as Hitler came to power, he left the same night and went up through Denmark to Svendborg, where he stayed for quite a while and had his whole family, numerous kind of lovers and collaborators were there together. But then he had to keep moving as the Nazis were coming closer and closer. Don't knock any nails in the wall. Just throw your coat on the chair. Why plant a tree now? You'll pack your bags and be away before it's as high as a doorstep. He counted the few things he had as he left more and more behind and went into the unknown. The things and the people he took with him got fewer and fewer and fewer. He went not knowing if he'd ever go home, not knowing if he'd ever get back, not knowing if his poems would survive. In the dark times, will there also be singing? Yes, there will also be singing about the dark times. It is welcome, is it not, to think about Brecht and his listing of these pleasures because remembering for ourselves, indeed, what gives us pleasure, what we're grateful for. This experience of gratitude is the source of the world's spiritual traditions. Yes, that's true. They all go back to that first primal, wow, I'm here. I got hands, I got hair, I got eyes to see, the ears that hear, you know, that it helps us be present. The first look out of the window in the morning. I have windows facing west toward the Pacific coast, and I see uh, the tops of houses, and I see a great big swatch of the sky. And if I'm lucky, I see birds crossing it. I love the sky. And as I age, I look at it more and more. Yeah, and I feel, oh, here I am again. Sky, earth, bed, air to breathe. The darkness of our time is so great. The challenge is so great. So many of us facing this time where there's actually in public discourse and mentions of private anguish, a realization that we may be finding societal collapse. We can get so easily tossed into panic. And so how do we ground ourselves? How do we know that we belong to a living planet? I, like Brecht, have found it more and more useful to list everyday pleasures. 
daydreaming. Sitting in the cafe. Meeting friends. I think I'd have eating in there. When sunny, I'd like take my disability scooter, go out, meet people. Eating with others and cooking with others. To watch dancing on ice. How you feel when you read. You are the whole world when you are sitting and reading. Cooking. Travelling. Fiction or poetry or a short story or a long story, whatever the kind of writing. All the sheep birds, silence. All the bunnies running round about. Making friends, making relations, making love. Across the wrinkled waters of the Sound goes a little boat with a patched sail. 1938 to 1939. As war breaks out, Brecht and his family move from Denmark to Sweden to Finland. The Starling's twittering is broken by the distant thunder of naval gunfire from the war games of the Third Reich. The newspaper. I hate the newspaper. <laughs> I'm surprised to see it on Bertolt Brecht's list because I don't think that he was someone who was necessarily pleased by the news of his times. Because my other first thought was like, oh, if you're benefiting from the world moving as it is, maybe the newspaper is a pleasing experience for you. Both the actual news itself, like, oh, it's a climate catastrophe. Oh, another war that's ongoing forever. These horrible pieces of news. But also now the very nature, the tone, the energy of how news is shared There's so much about it that feels like a gleeful gladiator experience. The poem starts with a window in the morning, so looking out. But the newspaper is also a way of looking out to the world. Old music carries with it the history, um, the new music, perhaps the future. Um, Comfortable shoes. Brecht writes a few poems um, earlier on about how he likes things that are used. He doesn't like new things. He likes things that are used because they carry their own history with them and their uh, thingness. The erste Blick aus dem Fenster am Morgen. The first look out of the window in the morning. I just got home from traveling for a month and I really love my home. This morning was like such a beautiful morning to like wake up in my bed in a room that's bright turquoise and the color that I want it to be with the sun coming through and everything in its place. The whole house, I was just like, God, I love my house. And that's such a pleasure to be a black woman in America <laughs> and feel that way. That I'm like, oh, I have a space that feels safe and that I really love being in. It's both a pleasure and then, you know, for me, Pleasure, especially for those of us who are oppressed or marginalized in any way, is actually a political act. I wake up in this home and I look around at the beauty that I've created and I feel the measure of my freedom in that pleasure. Some of the pleasures of Brecht, a story I found in the podcast feed to the BBC's Seriously show. And that was produced by Phil Smith, who also composed the music and recorded it in Brecht's house in Germany. And it's a Something Else production for BBC Radio 4. It's a common experience when you're a new parent. A stranger in a supermarket comes up and mistakes your precious little girl bundle for a boy bundle, just like totally overlooking the fact they're quite clearly wearing booties with a subtle pink trim. But where did this widespread association of blue for boys and pink for girls actually come from? 
It's a question listener LV left on the Every Little Thing helpline, and it sends host Flora Lichtman down a rabbit hole of discovery. As Every Little Thing does every episode, it tries to answer a listener question. Recent shows have looked at the origins of cheerleading, duct tape, trousers, and what that distinctive smell in op shops actually is. Meanwhile, the show's also been running a campaign to have the Flamingo adopted as the mascot of a professional sports team. But back to Pink and Blue, and it turns out it's actually a fairly recent thing. For a long time, until the 1890s or thereabouts, boys and girls both wore white dresses, looked identical, and were described using gender-neutral pronouns like baby or it. During the late 1800s and early 1900s, when parents are starting to take their boys out of dresses at two or three rather than six or seven, America is going through some big societal changes. Mm -hmm. And these big changes may help explain the little one we're interested in. So I want to tell you about three. First, urbanization. In the late 1800s, droves of people were moving off the farm and into cities. One of the pieces of fallout of industrialization and urbanization is that people perceived that they were losing something by losing their connection to the rural agricultural lifestyle. Hannah says that for men, that meant losing a connection, I'm paraphrasing, to their garden of manliness. You're out on the farm and it's an honest day's labor and a man can be a real man, you know, when he's chopping down trees and, you know, shoveling pig poop or whatever. So they come into the city and suddenly they're not outside all day. They're indoors. And the perception was that people who worked in cities are getting soft. Crisis of masculinity, that's number one, Z. <laughs> Here comes terrible, too. Homophobia is really coming into its own during this period, especially for men. The crisis of masculinity and the fear of homosexuality are really you know, two sides of the same coin. They're both about this um, fear that men are not adequately manly. And if men are not adequately manly, then what are they? Yeah. In fact, the terms homosexual and heterosexual are coined just a few decades before, in the 1860s. And along with these labels comes the idea that being attracted to the same sex is a mental disorder, one that's possibly preventable. There comes to be this social uh, awareness that Proper manhood is not something that just magically happens. It's something that you have to cultivate. Hmm. Okay. Into this stew of homophobia and masculinity concerns come brand new fields of study around the mind, psychology and psychoanalysis. And practitioners, like Freud, warn parents that babyhood matters. They're like, babies aren't just poop machines you feed and burp. You can mess them up. There is a newfound concern with this notion of parenting and that parenting is a job that you need to do correctly. Um, And that's really where the concern with this proper gender formation comes, that they play the right games, that they, you know, go to the right schools, that they learn the right subjects, that they have the right hobbies. And that they wear the right clothes. Mm. So here are the threads. First, you have a society worrying about manhood and sexuality. On top of that, you have psychologists saying how you treat your baby matters. And then all of a sudden, people start caring about what their babies are wearing because they're told that if they get it wrong, their boys won't turn out right. So it wasn't really just one thing, but it was 
kind of like a few things that contribute to this labeling. Yeah, you might say that they're the crisscrossing underground tubes of a prairie dog village that lead us to your tube. Yes, to my YouTube, my YouTube channel. Well, at least to the pink and blue tube. Yeah. How did pink and blue become a shorthand for gender? Let's get back into that non-metaphorical closet with our fashion historian, Joe Paoletti. She said pink and blue didn't start out masculine and feminine. Pink and blue, the pastel form of blue, uh, those were considered kind of youthful colors. So a young girl might wear those colors or a young, a young boy. Until the early 1900s. That's when pink and blue start to be used to signify gender. And you see it on baby announcement cards, baby blankets, clothing. But there's a wrinkle to the pink and blue rollout. And what is this wrinkle? Sometimes it's pink for boys and sometimes it's pink for girls. Wait, that's crazy. Let me show you this advice column from 1923. Um, okay. Um, oh, okay. Dear... Helen Brooks. She says, I have always been under the impression that pink is the color used for the printed announcement for the baby boy and blue for the baby girl. The columnist responded by saying, there is no agreement about which color goes with which gender. All over the country, it's all different. Depending on where you shopped, it would be pink for boys or pink for girls. Huh. It got to the point where national magazines were investigating the question. There was an article from Time magazine in, I think it was 1927, the Queen of Belgium was having a baby and they were decorating the nursery in pink in anticipation of an heir. The boy was getting the pink treatment. And apparently that set hair on fire in the Times office. So they got reporters to call all across the country to department stores saying, is it pink for boys or pink for girls? And all over the country, it's all different. That's how it was in the 1920s. By the 1950s, it was basically settled. Pink is for girls, blue is for boys. But who came up with, like, because you want your kid to be masculine, make sure his clothing has blue? I wish we could say who or what is exactly responsible for this shift. But we don't have, like, a single Tim Gunn figure telling parents how to dress their kids. So here are the theories. One theory has to do with an art sale in the 1920s. This American railroad baron bought two really expensive paintings. One was of a boy wearing blue, and the other was of a girl wearing pink. The sale was highly publicized. A quote in the New York Times compared it to buying the Mona Lisa. So that might have something to do with it. Another theory ties the Mother Goose jingle, Little Boy Blue, to the rise of blue as a masculine color. Okay. Some say it was First Lady Mamie Eisenhower's love of pink that cemented it as a girl's color. Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, people always look up to, like, the First Lady and, like, what she's wearing and all that. Exactly. Makes sense. Department stores, too, had a vested interest in settling this debate. They see it as a way to sell things. If you want to sell lots of stuff, you can't give them hand-me-downs. You can't give them things that can be reused from child to child. So there's a real interest in pinkifying things in order to make it less usable. If somebody has another child later on, they're going to have to buy new things for the boy because the boy can't possibly have all the pink things. Pink and blue is all about the green. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Money. And this commercial strategy works. By the 1980s, pink isn't just a color for girls. It's only for girls. 
is such a strong symbol of femininity that it is toxic to boys. They can't possibly ride their big sister's worn-out bicycle because it's pink. Which is nuts, considering that only a few decades earlier, the whole country was split on whether pink was for girls or pink was for boys. What the history tells us is that it could have easily gone the other way. Flora Lichtman, the host of Every Little Thing from Gimlet Media, and an episode called Pink for Girls, Blue for Boys. Why? And the show's also made by Annette Heist and Phoebe Flanagan. And that's about it from the podcast half an hour, as well as Every Little Thing. This week, we've been listening to When We Got to the Seventh, Personal Best, and The Pleasures of Brecht from the BBC's Seriously podcast. So until next time, from me, Richard Scott, happy listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.